Hi there, I'm Neve Shaw and this is Humans of Space, a podcast about curious people. More specifically, it's chats with people that I've met along the journey so far in getting to space. People from many parts of the world, people who've inspired me, people who do interesting things, know interesting stuff, have figured out great things, or people who want to change the world. Curious people who are happy to chat with me about their lives, their passions, and explore together what drives us to be the people we need to be. I like to think that Humans of Space is a blend of space, science, curiosity, and creativity for ears of all kinds. But I guess that's up to you to decide. I'm talking today to Paul Dye, the longest serving NASA flight director and heavily involved in the space shuttle mission. He began as an intern at NASA Johnson and worked his way up at increasingly responsible roles to ultimately become the flight director. Not only that, he's a pilot, an aircraft builder, a writer and an editor. And his new book, Shuttle Houston, My Life in the Centre Seat of Mission Control, is currently available from Hachette Books. And I'm really looking forward to speaking to him today. Paul, you're very welcome to the Humans of Space podcast, and thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you. It's always a pleasure to chat with folks and uh, especially talk about what we used to do and we're privileged to do uh, in the space program. So yeah, I'm happy to share. Great. So firstly, how are you during lockdown? Are you safe and well? Is everything okay where you are? Yeah, we're actually uh, pretty good. We're in uh, in Nevada, uh, in the United States, which mm. is uh, a fairly uh, unpopulated state. Uh, Our state capital, we live outside our state capital, which is only a population of 60,000 people. So we have a pretty low population density and we're doing well. And we we can fly anytime we want and go out into the middle of the desert and four-wheel drives and uh, and, uh, social distance to our heart's content. So did you move out there after you retired or had you already adjusted living a life where you were half in Nevada and half in Houston? No, we moved out here after after we retired uh, in, in Houston and uh, my wife was still working in Texas. And uh, so I came out here first and uh, oversaw the building of our house on a runway and our hangar. And then uh, when she finished up what she was doing, she joined me. So it's fair to say that your passion in life is flying. I can't remember a time when I wasn't fascinated by flying machines. I'm always really interested to know what kind of kickstarts people's passion. So where did your passion for flying begin then? You know, I have a difficult time answering that question because I don't know. I've just always been fascinated by flying machines. When I was, some of my earliest memories are watching a black and white television, uh, watching the show Whirly Birds and, uh, and Sky King. And I was just enamored by it. I lived in a small town in, uh, in north central Minnesota and uh, it was on a lake and down at the city park. There was in the summer, there were seaplane rides. And that was my, the, my biggest wish until I was six or seven when I finally got my first ride was to go up in one of those. It's hard for me to trace why aviation is so important in my life, but it is. Well, how does it make you feel? Uh, I think a large part is the freedom of moving in three dimensions. Um, I do a lot of, uh, of flying. Uh, well, I travel, I, I travel by airplane. I, I do a lot of flying where I simply enjoy myself in the air, uh, aerobatics, uh, just turn the, turn the world upside down, uh, turn the right side back up again. Um, I do a lot of test flying. I enjoy doing things that a lot of people have not had the ability or not developed the ability to do. I guess there's a uniqueness to flying 
in the United States, something like less than 1% of the population of uh, our pilots. It's interesting to be able to do something that's complicated, that's challenging, and that, uh, that gives you the incredible views and freedom of being in the air. Do you remember much about that first flight? I remember that it was very hard to see over the window, Sil. Looking down uh, on the lake as we circled the lake in our small town and, uh, and seeing the tiny cars and the people and the tiny houses, that, those are kind of the lasting impressions, I think. What age were you when you started kind of getting your hands dirty and getting stuck in to actually kind of learning about them and tinkering with them and flying them? Well, of course, I built models and uh, building models from the age of five, probably, and flying models and then flying model rockets as well. Um, so anything that I could get that would fly. But when I was about 13, I was given the opportunity to join a group called the Explorers. And the Explorer, the Explorer program is for older boys and girls who want to be involved in scouting. Then I was a scout as well. So there was an Explorer post which was formed by a local fixed base operator at the airport who had a couple of wrecked uh, Piper Cubs that he had uh, bought. And he needed labor to, to put them back together. And so as explorers, we went out to the airport uh, two nights a week and we worked on the airplanes and, um, and got them flying again. And when we got them flying, we were given the opportunity to learn to fly uh, for, for a ridiculously low amount of money, basically gas and oil. Um, so so it, was, it was kind of an internship into aviation. In your house, were you all technical? Did you grow up in a house where curiosity was like, you know, one of the most normal things in the world. Like, so in, in my house, you know, I'm an, I'm an engineer and scientist, so curiosity was kind of our thing. So it, it's no coincidence that that's the career that I had. So in your house, what was the general vibe of how you all got on? Well, my, both my parents were teachers. My mother was a home economics teacher. My father was a math teacher. And uh, when I was about four, he was given the job, uh, uh, after being a high school math teacher for for. Uh, 15 years, he would he took the job of the state mathematics coordinator for the state of Minnesota. So his job was to develop curriculum, math curriculums and things, and then be a math teacher consultant all over the state. He was constantly bringing home interesting things in math and in physics because his desk was right next to the science consultant. And so I had access to a tremendous amount of what today would be called STEM materials. Uh, and um, and it was just always fascinating to me. This was the 1960s, so uh, my dad was on the mailing list from NASA, and everything that NASA sent out of, of an educational nature ended up in my drawer. About every single Mercury flight, every single Gemini flight, every single Apollo flight, and I just couldn't get enough. You were in the right place at the right time. So was it an obvious choice then for you to go ahead then and study aeronautical engineering? It was a fait accompli. It was just what I was going to do. Aeronautical engineering looked like a great way for me because my heroes that I'd read about, people like Jimmy Doolittle, were engineers and pilots and mechanics, and they did it all. And that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to be able to, to, to design, build, maintain, fly, test fly, flying machines. Was it a big ambition for you then to be a part of NASA? My goal had been to work for one of the small aircraft manufacturers. And then the opportunity came along to intern with NASA. I had always been enamored by the space program, and I didn't know what I was going to do when I applied to it. I had no clue. I applied, and they accepted me. But there were many people that knew me growing up that all said, oh, we all know you're gonna, you were going to end up at NASA because you were always flying model rockets. 
Well, yeah, I was, but I was also flying model airplanes. So it's all flying. It, it's just all flying. And, and uh, the, uh, the, the, the amazing thing was when I got to Houston as a co-op, they put me in the operations organization, mostly because I was already a pilot and I was already a, a master uh, diver. Um, and so I understood real-time, hazardous, dangerous environment operations. And, and it worked out well. A lot of people that I speak to, um, you know, of a certain generation were very inspired by the moon landing. So did that moment in time have a big impact on you? Absolutely. The moon landings were just astounding. Um, and uh, I was 11 when Apollo 11 landed on the moon. And you know, people will say that there was probably nothing that I didn't know about it that the public could know at the time. Do you remember what materials your dad got at that time for Apollo 11? Oh, certainly. We had mission summaries and, and you know, <gasps> uh, pre-briefs, you know, the, the, the glossy color books that they sent out, uh, everything. When Apollo 13 flew and had their emergency, um, I had built a model, a, a fairly detailed model uh, kit of, uh, of the Apollo spacecraft. And I remember taking that to school and giving a demonstration in front of the entire class of what was going on in space uh, and how the spacecraft worked and what they were doing to come home and how they were going to reenter. And, and I was in sixth grade. Yeah, 13 or so, isn't it? Yeah. So even then you were really good at explaining things. Like that's the thing in your book. You have this incredible ability to explain quite technical details in categories. And sometimes like engineering and maths and science can seem very difficult. But if somebody is able to take something from the very basics and build it up in categories, then I think most people can understand most things. I found in your book, Paul, your incredible ability to do that. And where does that come from? Well, thank you. First off, thank you very much. It's a skill that, that I think I, I've developed throughout my life. And, and I, can't, I can't emphasize enough that not only were my parents teachers, every one of my aunts and uncles, my parents' brothers and sisters were teachers. So explaining things at a level that your audience can understand and not talking down to the audience, but talking to the audience so that you can develop where they're at and then lift them up and increase their knowledge is a skill that I think I've carried through almost every activity I've ever done. To understand your audience is key, you know, like just because you have information, if you can't make it applicable to them, it's it's useless, but it's, it's a credible skill. Right. And I always told uh, young uh, engineers and flight controllers that it was probably the most critical skill if they wanted to advance their career, because you have to be able to explain a very complex problem to potentially the administrator of NASA, who is a very smart person, but doesn't know anything about the details of what you do. And so you're going to have a very short period of time to bring him up to speed so that he can clearly understand the decision they have to make. And that is a skill set that will help you advance in an engineering career. When you joined as an intern, what was that like for you? Because I know you were saying that you were surrounded by some of the, you know, some of the key figures of the Apollo program, like Gene Krantz and Chris Kraft. What was that like? These are legends. <laughs> I've always said that it's a double-edged sword to meet your heroes. Because when you meet your heroes, you know, you discover that, that all heroes have feet of clay. That everybody has amazing things they've done and amazing, and, and then also things that they're not proud of. You realize that these people are human. And to a large extent, 
the good people, while being very disciplined and very strict, were very willing to share what they had learned. Chris Kraft did not suffer fools gently. Um, you needed to be on your game all the time. Uh, but if you were, he was a wonderful guy to work for. Um, and, and Gene Kranz, similar, and, and all of these amazing people uh, that I was given a chance to work for. You had to get over your awe very quickly because otherwise you were never going to get anywhere. My office as a co-op was on the same floor as the astronaut office. I'm sharing the restroom with guys who walked on the moon. And you realize, well, they're just guys, you know? And to this day, I think of that as we're all just people who learn, learn certain skills and certain knowledge, and more importantly, we're given incredible opportunities to contribute. And you, you always have this little guy sitting on your shoulder reminding you of that, just how special it was that you were given these opportunities. Not how special you are, because that's an ego thing, but how special the opportunity was and you don't want to waste it. That's a good reflection on you as a person as well. For us space geeks, you know, Gene Krantz obviously was the flight director on a lot of the Apollo missions. And then Chris Kraft even was before him. He was involved in the Mercury and the Gemini missions, which were the first two programs of um, of NASA. So these guys are like wall of fame kind of people um, in terms of the history of, of space. So that's incredible that you were around them and that they actually taught you. So when you met Gene first, the flight director for the Apollo program, did you ever think for a minute that you would end up having the same job as him? I, I think it took a while before I realized that the flight director was the job I wanted. When I first met Gene, no. He was now the deputy head of mission operations. He wasn't a flight director at the time. Um, he'd, he'd gone on to, the big, to bigger things. And so I think it took me a little while to realize that, wow, that's a job I want. And longer still before I would admit, it, admit that to other people, that that's what I was looking for. It's a long path and you have to learn every aspect of mission control really to be a competent flight director. And you certainly earned the right to do that. In your book, you describe that you would be given books to to study, but really you just had to keep learning yourself. And the more you kind of went off and learned the job of, of other desks and other, um, other flight controller positions, that's how you actually got to be a good one. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So if you really want to excel in what you do, you need to go beyond what you're required to do. There are many flight controllers who go to work at eight and they go home at four and they do a, a very competent job of what they were asked to do. But the ones who are going to be noticed and the ones that are going to be looked at for promotion and the ones that are going to be the few that are going to be looked at as potential flight director material are the ones who, who after their their normal assignments are staying late and looking at video classes and going to extra projects and then learning about everybody else's system. It's not just enough to know what you're responsible for. You need to know how everything else works on a spacecraft. And that's how you become recognized as a go-getter, someone who's really excited and committed to the program. It's almost a monk's life. You know, you have to, you have to, put everything else away. And, and I didn't have a lot of other things outside of work at the time. I was flying my airplane and I was uh, a volunteer firefighter in my community and, and I was at work. That, that, that was it. I was either at the airport or the fire station or at work. You know, as you were building your skills, was there a particular role or function that was assigned to you 
that was probably the most difficult part for you to overcome? I remember being coached one time by probably our division chief who who sat me down and said, Paul, you're you're a brilliant engineer and and uh, and you you really you really understand the systems and your and your real time operations are outstanding and he said and if you don't figure out how to work with people better somebody's going to kill you um, and <laughs> and I realized that that at that time I was probably letting my ego get a little bit large and get out of out of control and um, so at that point you know you kind of go okay I really need to make sure that I'm bringing everyone else up to my level. People didn't compete by squashing each other. We were trying to be the best we could be individually. And it lifts everyone up uh, when you do that. How did you learn that skill? Uh, mostly by watching, by picking people that I said, that, that's who I want to be look, that's who I want to look like. That, that's who I want to be in the room. And a lot of it was resurrecting lessons from my years uh, as a scout. I'm, a, I'm an Eagle Scout. I think a large part is picking the people that you want to emulate and trying your best to be like them. I think that's a lesson for life. I think it's something that extends beyond mission control. You know, if you find people um, and you observe what they do well, and if you, I mean, if you're lucky for them to mentor you, as you say, or even observe them, we can pick up a lot from watching good behaviors. You really can. They don't even know that they're mentoring you. Was there anyone in particular that you observed then that you went, they're so good at what they do? And what was it that they were doing so well? There are so many. There are about 10 to 12 flight directors in the flight director office at any one time. We kind of described ourselves as the knights of the round table. Everyone brought different skills to the office. And we were said, you know, pick somebody in the office that you want to be your mentor. And Milt Heflin was somebody who I always enjoyed working with as a flight director. He was uh, thoughtful. He was... Uh, kind, if that's the good word. Um, he tried to bring the best out of his people. He was attentive. He listened. Again, he didn't suffer fools gladly, but but he he gave you a lot of rope and he really helped encourage you to do best. So Milt was one of the flight directors in the office at the time that I said, you know, I think I, think I really want to be like Milt. Mission Control, there's just so many people involved in, uh, you know, whether it's uh, you're working on the space station program or the space shuttle. Can you give us a very brief kind of summary of the teams of people that come together to run uh, a mission, like the teams of people that are in mission control and their support? I mean, I know it's a lot to ask, but just like a very quick wash for people to understand. So when you see mission control, when you see a picture of mission control, you see a room with about a dozen people in it. Those are what we call the front room flight controllers. That's the, those are the people at the pinnacle of their disciplines. They are responsible for particular systems, disciplines, or, or the like in operations. And each one of those people has between three and ten people in a back room supporting them. So, uh, you know, that's a, that's a whole other tier that you don't see. And those are our more junior engineers, operations engineers, who are learning the ropes, learning to support in real time, learning to work with a fast mind. Um, you need to be able to, to think very fast through many, many different alternatives, but then not act any faster than you can. Uh, we, we say, you know, think fast, act slow if you can. Um, and then if you... If you watch the movie Apollo 13, you also saw that flight control team, the front room and back room, bringing in engineering support. So you had the entire engineering community that 
built the hardware, that built the software, NASA and contractors, who then can be called on to give additional information and support. And that's called, those people work in what we call the mission evaluation room, which can be a, a bigger team of people than the actual flight control team. And then we also don't want to forget the ground controllers, who are the, the folks who actually run the building and make the building work, and all the computers and interface to the ground sites around the world, and the TDRS, the 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 TDRS, the track and data relay satellites, the the relay satellites that that are uh, around the world. And so this team that we that we have working for the flight director is a very very large team of people, and. And the way I've described it puts the flight director at the top of this pyramid. But, but that's only half the picture because above the flight director, we have my boss and we have the program bosses. And then you have the administrator's staff and you have Congress and you have the people. And so there's this inverted pyramid which, which joins the flight director right there at that, at that point. And we call that point the point of maximum pressure. So with all that responsibility on your shoulders, how do you manage the pressure of that and serve your team well at the same time? That's a really good question, which I've been struggling to answer for many years. If you're given to react to stress in a negative way, you're never gonna you're never gonna get to the position and you're never gonna be able to to live in the position. I never saw the flight director job as stressful. I saw it as extremely busy. You've got to let your mind run very, very fast. You have to be able to think of many, many alternatives at the same time. It's kind of like playing chess in that you have to be able to think two, three, four, five moves ahead with many different alternatives, and you have to do that in seconds. You don't have, you don't have a lot of time to think about it, so you kind of have to develop the ability to to head in the right direction and know how to make corrections if that wasn't a perfect decision, but it was good enough to get you to the next next step. And so does that come from the number of simulations that you would do? It really does. First off, there has to be a natural ability. We select people as they mature in their career. For every thousand flight controllers, there'll be one flight director selected. We select for that characteristic. And then as you train, you have simulation after simulation after simulation. And that builds confidence in your ability to make the right moves. And so by the time you're a flight director, you've spent countless thousands of hours um, in this high-pressure environment making decisions and learning how to do it well. Is it kind of like riding a roller coaster that after the fact you go, woohoo, or like is it a bit <laughs> of an adrenaline rush? How does that feel? It's a little of everything. Uh, when you have a flight control team that's handling a really, really difficult situation with lots of failures and you're seeing the problem through to the end, there is nothing that feels better to be working with a team that is just, that is just firing on all cylinders. And I, and I choose my words carefully there. It's called working with a team. It's not the flight director. It's the flight director conducting the orchestra of really good players and getting the best out of everybody to chart the right path through to success. And when that happens and that's working right, there is nothing better. It's just an incredible feeling. Um, 
when you have a case where you survived, but you realize that you've survived by luck, you just happen to make the right decision and you could just as easily have made a bad one. You kind of wipe your brow and go, whoa, wow, that was, that was close. <laughs> and, and you think about that later on and you say, I don't want to be there again. It's, it's just a constant building on the experience. It is a very big thrill. Now, our goal is always to make flights as boring as possible. Uh, which might people might find that kind of strange because space flight's awfully exciting. And 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 I like to say space flight is exciting all by itself. We don't need to make it any more exciting. Um, and so yeah. we're always trying to make it as as simple, as boring, as uh, unexciting as possible because that means you're headed towards mission success. I guess you learn to embrace failure. I think failure is almost the tool of success really in that kind of environment. There's a phrase that became very popular after a movie Apollo 13, which is failure is not an option. Gene Kranz actually never said that. That was made up by the actor who played him, and, uh, but Gene really liked it. And we all really liked that phrase, too. Gene used it as the title of his book. The funny thing that we discover about ourselves is that we truly do not like to fail. After I retired from NASA, I was asked to edit a magazine for experimental aircraft. And a few years at, into that job, I discovered that, you know, I was working so hard to make bad articles work. And I had to stop and go, wait a minute, Paul, failure is an option. It's okay to just throw this in the trash. You don't have to make everything work. In space flight, failure truly is not an option. You, if, if you fail, you kill people. It is so ingrained in our DNA by the time we're experienced at NASA that, that we really uh, have to unlearn that in less critical parts of our lives. Uh, you know, I had to remind myself that the magazine is just a magazine. Nobody's going to die if we have a problem. In order to reach that level of success, all those simulations in a way... Oh, you do, you do, you do have failures. In the simulation, you're always, you're always going, yeah, I could have done that better. Yep, we don't want to do that. We, we completely blew that. Um, and, and that's how you figure out how to not fail for real. So, Paul, that in your career, you get to be flight director and you all have to give yourself a, a call sign, right? So can you tell us the story of where you how you came to call yourself Iron Flight? Sure. For those who don't, under, don't know, the, very first, the three first flight directors, Chris Kraft, John Hodge, and Gene Kranz, picked red, white, and blue as their team colors. Um, and it was very patriotic, and that's about what we're doing. And then they selected a couple more flight directors, and somebody picked green because, frankly, they were Irish, I think. Um, and then yeah. there was someone who picked black, and, and nobody wanted to be yellow, but they did pick gold and silver. And, and so uh, that got us into the minerals. And by the time I was the 35th flight director in U.S. history, I chose iron as my call sign because I come from the iron ranges of northern Minnesota. My grandfather was an iron miner. And so I chose iron because I like the symbology of it and uh, because it, it, it salutes my heritage. What's the traditions around being a flight director? There are traditions around being a flight director. There are little superstitions that people have all the time. You always take a handover in this way. And I had a very, very rigid way of doing handover briefings when I was coming on. And I did everything the same way every time because that's how I, I make sure that, that I don't miss things. At the end of my missions, uh, I had a, a box of railroad spikes from, uh, that were actually from an Iron Range railroad in northern Minnesota. 
um, when they were tearing up some tracks and, uh, and I collected some, some spikes and I would engrave the, the mission number on the head of one of those spikes. And then it would go on my desk back in my office uh, as a memory of the mission uh, that we flew as the iron team. And so, uh, so yeah, there were lots of, lots of traditions and, uh, and things like that to develop and, and like, just like baseball players, little superstitions. We had one flight director who wouldn't let anybody have any red. He didn't like red in the room. Didn't want any red ties or red shirts or red jackets. I didn't have any, any negative superstitions like that, but, uh, but there are all sorts of traditions. Yeah. In your role as flight director, did the years just fly by? Do you get used to taking on that much responsibility? And do, is every mission distinctively different as it seems to us when we observe them? Does every one, every mission have a different flavor? Missions generally have very similar flavors, um, especially once we got into building the space station. Flying a space station assembly mission, the details were different of what was in your payload bay and how you put those things, how you attach them. But the, the getting there, the first three days of the flight were almost a cookbook. You know, launch day, inspection day, which is flight day two, and then rendezvous and docking day, flight day three. And the key to success is doing it the same way every time. Um, and that's why, you know, airline travel is so incredibly reliable and safe these days is because crews do things exactly the same way every time. And we don't allow for deviation, except when, when outside influences come in and force you to deviate, but then you try and get back to the normal as quickly as you can. Every mission is different. You have different objectives, different crews, but you try and make the, the fundamentals of them the same so that you're working to... to you, you can concentrate on what's different and not worry about the many things that are the same. And I guess launch and, and return are always the most critical parts of the mission, would you say? I would say they're the highest energy parts. <laughs> a, lot, a lot can go wrong very, very fast. Um, and, and they're probably the most objectively dangerous parts. Um, the more complex parts can get involved when you're trying to attach large pieces to a space station or you're trying to rendezvous or you're trying to do the very, very complicated science. Um, those things can be very complicated on orbit. Yeah. And Space Shuttle, I mean, you know, what, what a great program. I mean, it really was uh, an exceptional uh, spacecraft. It, it contributed so much to uh, where we are now. Um, you know, without it, we probably wouldn't have the space station that we have now. And, and even just docking to the Mir and, and the Hubble as well. Can, can you just give us your highlights? I really think that 100 or 200 years from now, when humankind is living all over the solar system, they're going to look back at the space shuttle as the DC-3 of the space age. A lot of people took the space shuttle for granted. They took the space shuttle flights for granted. They said, ah, you know, you're just going to low Earth orbit again. What's so exciting about that? I said, yeah, but people just get on the bus to go to work every day. And what's so exciting about that? Well, they might be doing something very exciting when they get to work. What I think the space shuttle will be remembered for was developing routine access to space. When I started as a flight director, I had some young flight controllers who were not born when Neil Armstrong stepped on the moon. When I finished my career as a flight director, I had young flight controllers who were not born when the shuttle first flew. These people had never known a time in their life when a human couldn't get on a space shuttle and go to orbit. And that's, to me, as a person who grew up in, in the early 60s, is amazing because I saw the birth of space flight. And I remember I was, in, I was at the end of my college career when we first flew the space shuttle. And so... Uh, to have a spacecraft that flew for 30 years 
and became routine enough that people thought it was boring, I think is a, is a legacy that we will carry forever. I think it was an amazing spacecraft. The design of it was just so advanced. I mean, it feels like we've never really had anything like it since. Like that ability to carry so much payload was how we were able to construct so many things in lower Earth orbit. It was a really big thing. It was really phenomenal. I used to kid my Russian friends that if they ever had difficulty with one of their boosters, we could easily put two of their Soyuz capsules in our payload bay and take them to orbit for them. I was in Kazakhstan. I went to a launch, my first ever launch, which was amazing in 2018. And I went to the museum there and I was able to climb into the Buran, which I know is like a copy of the space shuttle. And then um, I got to go to Johnson late 2018 and I was able to get into the one on top of that plane. And they're huge. <laughs> yeah, they really when you, are. When you compare um, them to the size of a Mercury spacecraft or even an Apollo command module, um, it's just shocking how big the space shuttle was. And how much room they had. No wonder there was seven of them going up at a time. It's quite a legacy to have been involved in. You were there for the complete space shuttle program, more or less from start to finish, the flight part of it. What did you see develop in that time, Paul, for the, for the program? I really saw a tremendous maturity in spaceflight operations. That What I mentioned a little while ago was that routine access to space. Um, and it's never truly routine. Um, I tell people that on the 135th flight of a radically new aircraft, you're still flying with one hand on the ejection handle um, because, you know, there's still things you don't know about it. But we developed so much capability and we did so much good science and, as importantly, engineering. Um, I see the space station as a very large engineering experiment. It's a place where we can develop the engineering skills to build spacecraft which can stay in space for years on a time because that's what we need to go to Mars. You need to have a spacecraft that will keep running and run reliably for four or five years. And that's, that's what we do with the space station is we figure out how to do that. Was it an emotional day when the space shuttle came back in July 2011? Yes. The end of the shuttle program was very, very emotional. It was hard to see it end because it had been a part of all of our lives for so long. But at the same time, uh, the next week, I was back in the control center flying space station. So I had reached a point in my career where I was about 50 years old, and I was going to have to give it up, give up real-time operations soon just because you're not thinking as quickly and it's hard to keep all of that in your head. And so I jokingly say that I'm kind of glad they retired the shuttle so I didn't have to make the decision to retire while it was still flying. But uh, then my last, my last year and a half, I was there flying the space station and my goal was to make sure that when I left and retired, I had passed on all the knowledge that was passed on to me about how to fly people in space by the Apollo veterans who trained me and I wanted to make sure that when I left, I had passed that on to the next generation. Isn't it incredible that, you know, through the generations, you're passing on everything that you've learned and it goes from one program to the next to the next. And that's one of the reasons I wrote that I wrote the book um, was to make sure that some of those things are documented for people. I haven't been in the space program now for seven years. And so I don't run into people all the time, but now they can go back and they look at some of that And stuff. did you plan when you were leaving to write that book or did the book come after that? Uh, I kind of had planned to write the book. I had been writing um, as a freelance magazine writer for a couple years before I left Johnson. And then they asked me to run the magazine. And, uh, and I said, well, that's great. I can work on the book at the same time I'm doing the magazine. And, 
one of the experienced magazine guys who mentored me said, put that idea right out of your head. He says, you are not going to have time to work on a book. He says, maybe in a few years you will. But, but the book was something that I wrote bits and pieces of over the past six years. And so when it came time to actually get a publisher and get an editor, I didn't start from scratch. I had a lot of material stored up on my computer that became the book. I think it's a textbook, a learning textbook, as much as uh, as much as a memoir, because the way you're able to categorize things, like explain the whole layout of mission control, to go through the principles of orbital mechanics, to explain, um, you know, the launch windows, everything in such a simple and straightforward way. That's what I find so unique about your book is that it is both a personal account, but it is also quite a factual book as well. It's a fantastic piece of work. Well, I'm I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> Yeah, it's really good. And I, I'm sure it's going to go really well. So you decide then to leave NASA. So was that a decision that came easily to you? I think I had always kind of figured that since I was burning the candle at both ends for so many years, that I was going to retire as soon as I was able to uh, with our retirement plan, which was age 55. But I also knew that that's way too young to retire. And I was given the advice from by somebody don't retire from something, retire to something. What are you going to retire to? And for me, that became back into experimental aviation. Over the years, I'd been given so many skills and so much knowledge about aviation and flight testing and the like that that's, that's where I naturally ended up. And so that's what I do today is, uh, is I build and test uh, aircraft. What was your last shift like then in mission control? Oh, the last shift... Uh, there wasn't a whole lot going on. The crew was just doing normal stuff. And it was, I think it was their evening uh, shift. So there wasn't a whole lot happening, which was good because, because the entire flight director office showed up uh, in the control center and uh, to wish me well. And we had the crew calling down and we had cakes and we had, you know, all of the, all the things you'd expect uh, for a going away thing. That was my last shift which was a couple of months before I actually separated, but it took me a couple of months to clean up my office and get ready to go. It was a joyous time, but at the same time, it wasn't terribly sad because, because the shuttle had already been retired and the space station, although a, an incredible piece of work, was not my first love. I enjoyed flying the space station as a flight director because it gave me a chance to still be on console and to interact with the young folks who were going to be taking it into the future. It wasn't that hard for me to unplug from that. But I, I tell people I still dearly miss sitting in the control center with an incredible group of people doing a wonderful job. That I dearly miss that. I can imagine. And then lastly, Paul, the future. It's really exciting to see launches from uh, U.S. soil again. I'm hoping to go to the next Crew Dragon launch if the restrictions kind of lift how do you feel about where it's going in the Artemis project, which is to return two people to the moon, hopefully by 2024, and, and Gateway, which is a spacecraft that'll orbit the moon and then onwards to Mars? How do you predict all that's going to go? Well, given the proper funding, I think it'll all go well. I think it's exciting. I'm glad to see the commercial space companies maturing and coming along to pick up transportation into low Earth orbit. I'm a, I'm a big fan of that. So that it gets NASA back to exploration. Um, I think going back to the moon, if it takes us 30 years to go to Mars because we're spending our time learning what we need to do on the moon, I'm okay with that. Um, we'll get there eventually. I think that there's a lot of exciting programs. The key is that you need to have long-term committed funding. You cannot do a space program in four-year increments. It just doesn't work. Um, and so 
we, we erased an awful lot of work over my years at NASA that got started but never finished. And then we'd start something else and never finish it and start something else and never finish it. And that's generally politics and funding problems, not, not engineering problems. From your career communicating and leading so many teams, applying it just to real life, what top tips would you give to people who are um, leaders out there or managers of teams or even just families? Life is complicated. The people who want to be leaders, I think the most important thing about leadership is vision. A good leader has a vision and then they have to inspire that vision in people to follow them. And if you don't have a vision that you can inspire in others, then you're not successfully being a leader. That is the key. When someone says, I'm a leader, I say, what's your vision? And, and inspire me by it. And then I will follow you to the ends of the earth. That is what leadership is about, is vision. And if you've got one that's so attractive, that's so incredible, that people you can recruit to help you carry that out are so excited by it, the leader's biggest problem is getting out of the way so he doesn't get trampled. Great. And NASA clearly had a vision that attracted you to them. And uh, I think they were all the luckier for having you as part of their team for all those years. So thank you so much. It was a, it, it was a great opportunity. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Thank you. Thank you, Paul. Thank you. If you like this podcast or if you like what I do or if you'd like to know more or have a question you can sign up for updates on my website neveshaw.ie This podcast is funded by my loyal Patreon subscribers the subscription content service that allows me to create and share exclusive videos advanced episodes of this podcast provide special deals and discounted offers for patrons of my work and thanks to those patrons I get to make the work I want to make and can continue in my mission to get to space in earnest and in return, I get to include them all in the adventures every step of the way. I couldn't do any of it without their support and I will be forever grateful to them. So thanks. And maybe you'd like to become a patron too. So if you would like to support my mission to get to space as storyteller, further details of Patreon's membership benefits and about this podcast, upcoming events and activities, they're all available from my website, neveshaw.ie account. I'd love to hear from you, but we can connect in other ways too. If you're on Twitter, my handle is Dior underscore Neve underscore Shaw. If you're on Instagram, it's Dior underscore Neve underscore Shaw. Or on Facebook, follow my page, Get Neve to Space. If you just want to watch more content, you can check out my videos on my YouTube channel, Neve Shaw. Humans of Space is produced by Mark Gardner and Catherine Cunning at Oxford Sound Studio, Oxford in the UK, with music by Tom Beasley. <laughs>